would like to buy your own copy of Black British Queer Players and Practitioners, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35 followed by your respective country code US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. Majisola Adebayo is a playwright, performer, director, producer, workshop facilitator and lecturer and Lynette Goddard is Professor of Drama and Theatre at Royal Holloway University of London in the UK. Together, they're the anthology editors of Black British Queer Plays and Practitioners. In part two of our episode, we'll be talking about issues of accessibility in theatre and how this impacts playwrights, audiences and even this collection. To combat this accessibility issue, we'll delve into how practitioners and theatre goers can benefit from reading this collection, particularly the intergenerational income conversation pieces. Then the editors will be giving us a behind the scenes look at how this collection evolved over time, as well as their own work in the theatre space. Yeah, when you were talking about companies and collectives and how there used to be a lot more East and Southeast Asian theatre shows, I do remember very vaguely, because this is literally just before like I started to be aware of like British theatre, I remember like just about when Mulan Theatre Company got its funding completely cut yeah the question about like companies and funding and the sort of like question about collectives and communities that's definitely something that um i'm friends with someone called daniel yorklow who talks about that kind of thing all the time it is something that i think about a lot like the individualism and how theater is structured especially with regards to like asking for funding and so on yeah i'm going to take us in a different direction a little bit and talk about access to theater There was a part of the book, someone was saying in the book about how even like theater professionals will still say, oh, black people don't go to the theater in England and things along those lines. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to access and I guess talk about how theater publishing has given people more access to plays or has it affected especially people from marginalized groups their ability to access plays and theater i'm going to start with publishing actually we had quite a trial trying to get this book commissioned as we said maybe before we were recording we started talking about this book actively talking about this book in 2013 and we sent it i won't name the publisher but we sent it to publishers to try and get this book commissioned. Slightly smaller version of what the books ended up being. So, you know, not too bad. We had something like five plays and then we were going to do forwards to each of the plays. And the feedback that we got back at the time was that the subject was too niche. There was anxiety after the editorial meeting about whether there would be enough people to buy this book, whether there would be an audience for this book. And fundamentally, the feedback was this is really niche. And so we don't think that we can support this project at the moment. Okay, we are going back nine years. But I think that we persevered because we really believed in the importance of getting this book out there. But I think that that too niche criticism uh, feedback is a feedback that's often that black practitioners and black writers and black artists, black people who make black theatre often have to come up against this thing of, will there be an audience for your work? Black people don't go to the theatre. Well, black people would go to the theatre if you put the plays on. If you put the plays on, then we turn out. I remember going to see, slightly off topic, but slightly not, I remember going to see Oladipo Agbolaje's The Estate. No, it was the second one. The First Wife, Iaile, at the Soho Theatre, matinee performance, Saturday afternoon. That theatre was full of black people, African people, 
wearing their clothes, African clothes, dressed up, come into the theatre to sit down on their Saturday afternoon. Black people will come to the theatre if the programming is right. Black people will come to the theatre if the publicity, the marketing rather, is right. Black people will buy and read books about black plays if those books are published and they will buy and read them if the marketing is right. The audiences are there and I think that the theatres have been risk averse, the publishers have been risk, quote unquote, averse as well. Seeing black work and seeing black books as a risk. I've been trying to publish in black British theatre since I guess the early 2000s and the single most bit of feedback that I get back over many projects actually is that it's too niche. That's one of the things that the publishers can try and get over in order to create better lines of access for black practitioners and for black queer practitioners. I totally agree and I'll keep it short but I was just thinking about that for me often that reveals its own discrimination within that there are other things happening that people don't talk about Beckett Samuel Beckett being niche absurdist Irish writer of writing originally in French in the 1950s and 60s breaking every convention around theatre and with the exception of Waiting for Godot most people couldn't tell you another play and how niche is a play where nothing happens twice or three times. So it's pretty niche. Surrealism, and uh, it's very niche. It's fantastically niche, but it also taken up by the kind of the white scholarly kind of intelligentsia of theatre and academia to say, and publishing that says this is important work. Often that word niche, really underneath it is discrimination because people go, oh, this isn't like my world. It's too niche because it's not like my world. I had a play rejected from being discussed on the Women's Hour. Ha <laughs> ha, here we are on a much better podcast. On Women's Hour, I don't mind saying it. Let them see me. Because they said it was too niche. And the play, Family Tree, is about Henrietta Lacks, whose cells were taken in 1951. They're the only cells that continue to reproduce outside of the human body. And those cells have led to medicines and vaccines um, that have affected every single life on the planet. And it also deals with gynecology, um, which affects about 52% of the population. So it's just like ridiculous. Like Henrietta Lacks's cells are the cells that have led to the biggest biological breakthroughs globally in the whole of history. Too niche. Why is it niche? Because Henrietta Lacks is a black woman. That's why it's niche. It's not niche at all. It's a cover-up for all kinds of discrimination. But until people would say niche, because I thought niche was a good thing. I was like, to be niche, before it was kind of like, oh, no, it's too niche and therefore we can't sell it and therefore we're not going to give you the book contract or whatever. I always thought niche before would be like, yeah, something's niche, it's niche. It's like, juji. it's like, it's kind of up there, you know? So there's something around that language. And that was exactly the language that was used in my proposal rejections let's call them that the word was niche and then suddenly niche was something that was negative rather than you know niche it's special do you know what I mean so there's a kind of funny turnaround of that word niche when it comes to black work 
Yeah, absolutely. What one, you know, Beckett is celebrated. We've said it really, but yeah, who gets to value what is niche? Thank you, both of you. It's funny, isn't it? Like you would hope that things would just be, and it's not just about theatre as well. It's like, I guess, all across all like cultural mediums, you'd expect that it would just be like, here is the quality of the work. And like, sometimes it doesn't fit to like some people's tastes and that's fine. But is it just about your particular taste as say the artistic director or is it about your like viewpoints and like whether they're limited or not, as it were? I was just thinking also about like, this has clearly affected the way that people view black people's work, other marginalised groups as well, viewing them as like niche or, you know, people aren't going to come to these plays, whatever that means. Obviously that affects playwrights, but it does also affect audience and not just audience, like people who do like read plays or study plays. Just sort of going back a little bit to the question of publishing and so on. With plays particularly, I used to work for a theatre publisher before Bloomsbury. I always find that like plays can be really important in terms of like archiving and because, you know, this is a very ephemeral form unless it's recorded. I talked to the editor of, well, not you guys, but um, the in-house editor of this collection. He said that like some of the plays he had to go into like an archive to then scan them and then have someone typeset it before they could be put together as collection or sent over to you guys. And what would have happened if like that particular archive didn't have that play accessible there's clearly a lot of plays that haven't been published or won't be published and have been lost to time as well so yeah in terms of just like viewing it as like a niche and who does and doesn't get to be published as well as shown and or recorded that's definitely something that I think that affects certain audiences and playwrights more than others which is a real shame Thank you for the answer. Yeah, uh, there's a thing there about because plays were published. There's been a more recent thing to publish plays that are put on in theatre venues, but there's certain theatre venues for whom plays are published. So it's the Royal Court, the National Theatre, and it's the mainstream theatres. And so whereas uh, plays that were on at the Brixton House or at many of the other venues where people's work was produced, they aren't automatically published. But in this collection, yeah, we had Basin, which was... I don't think they had a typeset still of Basin, so that had to be retyped up from scratch. And we also had, um, is it Syndites, I think, who was, which was published, but it was published by another publisher before Bloomsbury. So we had to get permission to get that play republished within a Bloomsbury collection. So, yeah. So we were just wondering if you could talk about, so some of the plays are quite naturalistic and others are more like monologues. And did you see any links between the plays or similarities, whether through like forms or theme, or was there a change in how the plays you were looking at evolved over time? Yes, it was interesting in the, through the plays and also the discussion that we had, the roundtable discussion that runs all through the book, that the space of the club seemed to be a recurring space that was really, really important for queer cultures and black queer cultures and the physical space of the club is referencing like boy with beer is spoken about although the play mainly takes place in a flat and in a bedroom syndikes is set in a club mostly bashment is also mostly set in a club space and refers to clubbing burgers travis alabanza has, has just left a club is walking home 
and Stars transforms into a club night. And Topher Campbell also talks a lot about the importance of the club space and things that were learnt and shared and celebrated in the club space. So that's a kind of an interesting connection between a lot of the plays. Also the position of the solo performer or the monologue, not just in these plays, but somebody like Tondurai Monyeva's work through his play Mugabe, My Dad and Me, and the kind of storytelling piece, Z, with Antonia Kemikoka. So these kind of individual stories and also autobiographical and plays that kind of mix the autobiography and fiction, that seemed to be an important recurring kind of type of work as well. Do you know, I hadn't noticed that we had so many monologue plays in there. It's only now that I'm looking at the layout of them. It's quite interesting that three of the monologues are from the more recent 2000s. And I think that speaks to something, that a pattern that maybe we will see or we are seeing in contemporary theatre at the moment, which is that there are a lot of monologue plays or solo performed plays. I think you can also see Thompson Soul and quite a few other solo performed plays that we're seeing at the moment. I guess some of the earlier plays would have been within that naturalist tradition because that was kind of how people wrote plays. And I'm going to write a play now and it's going to be realist and it's going to tell a story and it's going to have a a linear narrative arc. But since the 70s and the 80s, black playwriting has really evolved and is more experimental. I mean, lots of your work, Marge, a lot of your work is monologue or two performers or experimental in form. And I think that black playwrights generally and black queer playwrights particularly have uh, experimented quite a lot with kind of disrupting the conventions of naturalist theatre form. I think we see that in the use of monologue plays or in a play like The High Table where there's kind of past and present. So there's parallel universes or parallel time frames that are happening in that play. So it's kind of a realist play in some ways, if you just were to follow one time frame or the other. But together, it's a disruption of of realist form. And I think a lot of black playwrights, black British, African-American playwrights as well, African playwrights, Caribbean playwrights, they disrupt the conventions of naturalism or realism in some way in their plays. I think form and experiments with form is quite an important aspect of black work, generally speaking. And monologue, I guess, is kind of one manifestation of that. And the ways in which the use of a performer's autobiography is then connected to maybe other issues, issues that aren't just from their personal experience, but that connect to issues that black people face or that black queer people face, black trans people face as well. Yeah, I was just thinking about audience and audience as participant. It's just that kind of work where the audience is very, very present, sometimes interacting. Sometimes that's written into the script and sometimes you just kind of had to be there. So you wouldn't necessarily know from a play like Syndikes by Valerie Mason John just how vibrant it was when it was performed, the kind of conversations. Lynette and I became friends partly through sitting next to each other in that play and at other times in that theatre space. Whether or not it was written into the script, people would call out things, make sounds, shock, amazement, humour, commentary, all the way through black people talking all the way through the shows. And that's indicated a bit in the roundtable discussion, that kind of, that's also why we felt it was so important to have the description of 
of those shows. And bashment was just a constant call and response with the audience. It's not in the script. You wouldn't know that necessarily from the script, but you'll know it from the discussion and recordings of the play. Burgers very directly involves the audience as participant in the creation of this burger and the deconstruction of gender. Stars, again, also directly involves the audience, as does the high table, which is, you know, not to give too much away from the ending, where the audience get up and dance and dance the electric slide, but at the end they go, I've given it away. Whether or not people are speaking. I didn't see Basin, but I've seen recordings of Boy With Beer and performed at a very, very tiny theatre, King's Head Theatre in North London. It feels like people are on stage, you know, in the bedroom with the men falling in love and falling in lust. So yeah, I think that that's a common theme through a lot of black work and particularly black queer work because the, the space of the audience and the performers um, gives us also a very rare safe space together to think about these things together. Um, a bit like the club gives us a safe space together to be together, to celebrate, to, to know each other, to meet each other and in theatre in particular to debate what's happening in our worlds. Thank you. I love that answer. It was really interesting seeing the evolution of, and obviously it's not a straight evolution at all, it's a survey, but it was interesting to see a sort of general like naturalistic and then starting perhaps to move on a little bit more to experimental forms in general in the collection and also to perhaps have a little bit of that discussion as well in the um, in the round table just quickly could you perhaps talk about your own work in like the theater space perhaps a little bit as well about the role of black queer theater community in particular and about the role of that in your work as well because it's quite clear especially if you read the the round table that you know a lot of you have like worked together in some capacity or another certainly like Valerie Mason John and Ricky Beadle Blair have been mentors to all collaborators to a lot of you so if you could talk about that and about your own work as well that would be great I can jump in if you like in terms of my own work there's no way I would have been able to produce anything if it wasn't for artists and writers who have mentored me supported me been my friend and also as an audience member and that kind of nurturing that you get as an audience member so that was a great privilege in terms of this book that Lynette and I saw, I think, almost all of these productions in some form. We know each other, most of us, or are very close friends of friends. It's not a clique, it's a community, for want of a better term. For me, reading Staging Black Feminisms and realising I was part of a history through the work that Lynette had written about in that book, going to see Syndikes at Oval House, sweating that summer and going, wow, this is really radical play about sex. <laughs> it's kind of with women in it and all interracial relationships and BDSM and tentatively thinking, wow, if they can do it, maybe I can come out. I wasn't even completely out as a lesbian back then. The plays that have given me kind of courage, like Bashman, is such a brave piece of work. I sat in the theatre thinking, am I going to get out of here okay? And are the actors going to get out of here okay? And Ricky Beadle Blair just took us on a massive ride and allowed for all of that homophobia to come out get it out, get it out. If there was ever a catharsis, it was in Bashman. And by the end of the play, you've got a group of 
people, as in the audience, so many of whom seem to be absolutely resistant to the idea of same-sex love, are championing a resolution at the end. And it really was like that. I'm not being romantic about it. It was an incredible moment. When Travis Alabanza makes that burger and takes their story and remakes that burger and calls that white man up on stage, I mean, what is it that I can't do when Travis makes me choke? But what is it that I can't do? when Travis does that, you know, and when my queer experience is excluded um, to an extent in my own culture and in my own family to an extent, but then I go and see the wedding at the high table and some members of my family might never have come to my queer wedding, but I feel very proud to go to the queer wedding that Temi Wilkie creates on stage in the high table. So that's a bit about my work, you know, I can waffle on about my plays, but what I'd rather say is that I'm made through all of the people that have made this book and more. I want you to go on about your plays more. When you're talking about the wedding in the high table, and I'm thinking of your piece, um, I Stand Corrected, which is also set within a kind of queer, lesbian wedding context, but one that is different to the high table. So yes, I'm a theatre historian, their historian, the theatre their historian, let me call myself that. And so I come from a background of working in the industry. I was a stage manager. I did backstage work. And then I went back to university and started a PhD on black British women's theatre. But it was really a PhD about where are the lesbians in black British women's theatre and thinking about the ways in which we define and describe black theatre as kind of feminist or not feminist or womanist or what kind of terms we use to define that theatre practice. And it was a, a book, Staging Black Feminisms, that Modge has already referenced. And it goes right back from the, I guess, the 50s, 60s and right the way through to the early 2000s. And it's looking at the stories that black women tell about themselves. I said themselves rather than ourselves because I identify as non-binary. So, yeah, the stories that black women tell about themselves and how those stories kind of relate to the lives that, that black women live in. Britain. So I kind of see myself as someone who's here to really document the many plays by black people that have been written from, I guess, contemporary. So from about the 50s, right the way through to the present. And Modges didn't want to talk about Modges' plays, their own plays, but they've got a body of work and a body of plays that are definitely worth checking out. I Stand Corrected, Muhammad Ali and Me which was a play that was in our original proposal for this book project. But as the time had moved on, it included stars instead um, so that we could become more recent. Muhammad Ali and me, Modge of the Antarctic. I was just talking to a colleague, literally, before I came up here, who's teaching Modge of the Antarctic this academic year, queering of the story of Ellen Craft, who was a black woman who escaped from being enslaved by cross-dressing as a white man. And into the mix, Modge brings kind of global warming, ecological crises and queerness. And so it's a mix of history and biography and mythography. Or So really, really fascinating work. And my colleague was saying that they're teaching it because the students really found that piece fascinating when they told them to watch it last year. I write about plays and I write about plays that have appeared and uh, I guess more you make plays as well as write about them. Thank you for the big up. I won't say much more, but all I say is I wouldn't have been able to make a piece like Modge of the Antarctic were it not for 
the space of a collective. And so the people who made that show were, we called ourselves the Antarctic Collective. I raised the funds. Nobody would have commissioned me to make that piece of work. Nobody would commission me as a black woman to go to Antarctica with a gender, queer, intersex photographer and cross-dress as a white man on the Antarctic continent. Nobody would have commissioned me to do that or to make that. I had to go out, get the money, slap the rest of my credit card and hope for the best and get a collective of people together and do it ourselves. So I guess for anyone out there listening and thinking about themselves and making work or writing or doing whatever art form you want to do, don't wait for the email to pop into your email box. Don't wait for the phone call. Don't wait for anything or anyone. Just make your work. It's not about knocking on the door of individual people with theatres or art galleries or anyone else telling you you're good enough. You've got something that you want to make, find a way of making it. Make it with money or make it with no money. You go to Africa, people make art on the street, in the home all the time, Caribbean the same. Money, no money. Scale might be different, but people are making constantly. And I think we get so locked into this kind of idea of what it is to make any kind of artistic work or to be a playwright. I became a playwright because I ended up making loads of shows that I didn't think anybody else would put on. And now I'm a kind of commissioned playwright, but it's not the pinnacle. It's just where I ended up. Make your work, only your voice can say what your voice needs to say. Only you, listener. Yeah, that's true. Because I couldn't do what I do if people weren't making plays either and weren't writing plays. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm reliant on plays that are written, usually published, although not exclusively published. That's why it was important to us to have those intergenerational conversations in the book, because it was about mapping the experiences of uh, Black queer practitioners from the past into the present and so people could kind of as you said Marge make your work and looking at the different ways in which people have come to make work the newer practitioners or the younger practitioners can hear that came up quite a lot in the thing where people were like oh my god you know we wouldn't have known about that work that was there from the 80s if we weren't a part of this conversation. So it was really important for us to have a conversation in which playwrights and practitioners like Topher, Ricky Beadle Blair, who've been working for a longer time than, say, Temi Wilkie and Travis Alabanza, that they could come into conversation with each other and they can learn and share with each other uh, the experiences of making work within the context that they made the work. Mm, it was a bit opaque. Just one last very quick question before then has to go. Is there anyone doing work that you are particularly excited about right now? I would say not a queer practitioner, but I like Zodwin Leone's work. She just had a play on at the Tri-School, formerly the Tri-School Theatre, the Kiln Theatre, called uh, The Darker Face of the Night, I think it's called. I like Zodwin's work because it's poetic, because it taps into, like, Nine Lives as well, that, that is in the book, taps into really, really important political issues, but it's told in a form that is poetic and watchful and quite beautiful. So I'm very excited to see what Zodwa does next in her career. If I'm thinking of particularly about queer and trans writers, I would say Travis, actually. And Travis doing, he's doing remarkable things with their work. I think that their play Overflow is currently touring in Australia, possibly. I can't remember exactly where. And they've got a play coming to the Royal Court in January, Sounds of the Underground, which 
comes back into the club culture stuff that Mod was um, talking about earlier. So I think if I had to pick two people, I would say uh, Travis, definitely, particularly for bringing that trans and non-binary experience to the stage. It's really important that that voice is heard. And Zodwa for beautiful work. I'll say very quickly yes to everything that Lynette said and the artists that they've referenced. Really excited that Toph Campbell is making documentary television work about black queer history and experience. It's big up them because they're in our book as well. Um, Tonda Romanievu, who is also a voice in the book, who continues to make independent work, um, telling stories, making us laugh, making us think. Yeah, we need another volume just for Tonda Ray. So yeah, I'm excited about everybody in the book. Um, Travis makes me tingle, I think. Travis gives me courage. Yeah. I'm going to say goodbye now. Legato chocolat. Legato chocolat. Oh my God. Legato chocolat. That will be the la- my last word. That will be the last words. Not published, but legato chocolat. Thank you so much, both of you. This has been a fantastic conversation. I'm aware we have to like let you go now, but thanks so much for being on here. You're welcome. Enjoyed it. <laughs>